You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 397 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As y'all will recall, we used the last episode to finish talking about the first day at the Battle of Chickamauga, and we looked at some decisions that were made by several officers that set the stage for the titanic struggle that would take place between the two armies on the second and third days of the battle. As you guys will recall, near the end of the last show, we talked about how, the evening of the 18th, Dan McCook's and John Mitchell's brigades of Granger's Reserve Corps arrived near Jay's Mill and Reed's Bridge after having been ordered down from Rossville in response to one of Minty's calls for support earlier in the day. When Dan McCook arrived on the scene, everything was quiet and there was no sign of Minty's Federal Cavalry, but McCook's men did capture some rear element troops from a Confederate brigade, and so Dan got the idea that only this one enemy brigade had made its way across Chickamauga Creek. Well, Colonel McCook was certain that if he could bag this lone rebel brigade, then such a feat would surely be enough to get him his brigadier general's stars. So the next morning, he set out to trap and defeat those Confederates. The morning of Saturday, September 19, 1863, the second day of the Battle of Chickamauga, dawned foggy and cold. The mercury had plunged to near the freezing mark during the night, and here and there the first frost of autumn had touched the North Georgia countryside. That morning, to trap the lone enemy brigade he imagined was on the west side of the creek, McCook sent out a force to destroy Reed's Bridge. McCook gave the task to the soldiers of the 69th Ohio. The Buckeyes set out and made it to the bridge, where they piled some brush on the span, set it alight, and then hightailed it back to friendly lines. They reported they destroyed the bridge, but in fact that was not true, since nearby Confederates quickly extinguished the flames before they could do any real damage. Meanwhile, the sharp crack of shots could be heard near Jay's mill. The mill was a short distance in front of McCook's picket line, A spring supplied water for the steam-powered sawmill, and in the pre-dawn twilight, some of the Federals had made their way forward to fill their canteens and boil coffee. 
This activity drew the attention of a small patrol of rebel horsemen from the 1st Georgia Cavalry. The Georgians opened fire on the careless Yankees, who scampered back to the safety of their picket line. As more Georgians came up and pushed forward, the Federal pickets fell back to where McCook was deploying his brigade in line of battle. But then, just as things were heating up, McCook received an order from Granger telling him to return immediately to Rossville. After receiving Granger's order, McCook reluctantly withdrew his and Mitchell's brigades back up the Reeds Bridge Road. The Confederates pursued them a short distance, then returned to the vicinity of Jay's Mill. McCook was frustrated with Granger's order to withdraw and was convinced he was being robbed of his golden opportunity to win his general's stars. So when he reached the Lafayette Road and found out that a sizable force from Thomas's 14th Corps was nearby, McCook left his command and went to find George Thomas. George Thomas was down the road at the Kelly Farm with the divisions of Absalom Baird and John Brannan. The other half of his corps was either still marching north or still in position, waiting to begin marching. Right. Joseph Reynolds' division was on its way, but still several miles to the south, currently halted so the men could boil coffee and fix a quick breakfast. James Negley's division hadn't started its march yet. Negley was still waiting to be relieved by troops from the 20th Corps. In any case, when Dan McCook found George Thomas, McCook told him that he'd destroyed Reed's Bridge and that a lone brigade of rebels was now trapped on this side of Chickamauga Creek. McCook suggested to Thomas that he and his men could perhaps, maybe, stick around and assist Thomas in bagging that lone brigade of rebels, but George Thomas declined to countermand Granger's orders to McCook, so a disappointed Dan McCook rode off to return to Rossville. After McCook left, George Thomas contemplated his next move. Thomas almost certainly knew the woods on the west side of the creek held more than a lone brigade of rebels, but he didn't contradict McCook. In fact, even later, in his report of the battle, Thomas repeated McCook's claim about the presence of a single Confederate brigade. The reports of both Baird and Brannan would also mention only a single enemy brigade. However, from talking with Rosecrans the night before, Thomas was aware a sizable force of rebels had crossed the creek the afternoon of the 18th and moved off to the southwest, that is, in the direction of Lee and Gordon's Mills. That meant on the morning of the 19th, those Confederate troops were presumably somewhere off to Thomas's right. In addition, at first light on the 19th, while on his way to Kelly Field, Thomas stopped and talked to Colonel John Wilder, whose Lightning Brigade was now in position two miles south of Kelly Field near the Vineyard Farm. Wilder filled Thomas in on the details of yesterday's fight and made clear that at least an enemy corps was now west of the creek. So, although Dan McCook insisted there was only a lone brigade of rebels on the west side of the creek, George Thomas knew better. He knew a large force of Confederates had crossed the Chickamauga the previous afternoon, 
But what he didn't know was where exactly those rebels might be, here on the morning of the 19th. From Kelly Field, the terrain to Thomas's East, that is, between the Lafayette Road and Chickamauga Creek, was nearly all wooded, cut only by a couple of roads and a handful of small farm tracks. So getting a definite fix on the enemy's deployment was going to be difficult. But, Thomas perhaps thought on the morning of the 19th, if he were now on the right flank of the sizable Confederate force that was on this side of the creek, and if only a lone enemy brigade had been detached to guard that rebel force's rear at Reed's Bridge, then, perhaps Thomas thought, if he attacked that lone enemy brigade and threatened the rear of the sizable enemy force on the west side of the creek, it would almost certainly throw a significant wrench into the Confederates' plans for the 19th. This is all just supposition, because George Thomas never said that's what he had in mind. But it's really the only explanation that makes sense, since he certainly knew that there was a sizable enemy force, much more than a lone brigade, on the west side of the creek. But if Thomas believed that the lone rebel brigade that McCook was talking about had been detached to guard that enemy force's flank and rear, then striking that lone brigade with overwhelming force would certainly disrupt the Confederates' plans for the 19th, and perhaps do much more. Perhaps the entire rebel force on the west side of the creek could be given a good kicking, thus crippling the enemy army. That Thomas decided to strike toward Reed's Bridge with the full combat power he had immediately at hand, that is, with both Baird's and Brannon's divisions, also suggests he wasn't setting out to make just a limited attack. No, when Thomas moved on the morning of the 19th, he was bringing the thunder. But, you might be thinking, George Thomas didn't earn the nickname Old Slow Trot by making impulsive, aggressive movements. So, you may ask, isn't it a bit puzzling that he did something so, well, uncharacteristic on the morning of the 19th? And the answer is yes, it is a bit puzzling. But Dave Powell, in the last episode's book recommendation, Decisions at Chickamauga, theorizes that Thomas's decision to use two divisions his entire available force, for the movement towards Reed's Bridge makes much more sense if, during Rosecrans and Thomas's conversation the previous evening, Rosecrans had shared that he wasn't just moving Thomas north to secure the road to Chattanooga, but that he was also thinking of a way to strike at Bragg's flank. And so George Thomas would feel confident making such a major decision and advancing a sizable force on his own initiative on the morning of the 19th because he knew it was in line with Rosecrans' thinking. Again, that's all just conjecture, but if true, it does help explain Thomas's decision on the morning of the 19th. In any case, George Thomas's decision to launch a strike toward Reed's Bridge would start a day-long slugging match between the two armies. When the Federal Infantry of Brandon's division ran into Confederates near Jay's Mill, the combat there soon escalated into a major engagement. 
Thomas would call on support from Crittenden's 21st Corps, and in addition, Rosecrans readily supported Thomas's effort once he was aware of it, sending a division from McCook's 20th Corps northward to help out. All told, by noon, George Thomas would have five divisions, half of the Army's combat power, under his direct control, and committed to the fight on the northern part of the battlefield. Well, it takes two to tango, as they say, and if George Thomas was the officer on the federal side who was most responsible for a major fight breaking out on the northern part of the battlefield on the morning of the 19th, then on the Confederate side, his dance partner, so to speak, was Nathan Bedford Forrest. Yep. Uh, Once again, we come around to Forrest. In the last show, we talked about how Forrest blundered on the night of the 18th, when he failed to effectively scout or picket the northern part of the battlefield, thus leaving the Confederate Army's right flank dangerously exposed. And so that night, when McCook's Federals came down the Reeds Bridge Road and parked themselves there in the woods, word of Yankees being where they weren't expected to be started to filter up the Confederate chain of command, eventually reaching Bragg's headquarters. Needless to say, this news came as an unwelcome surprise to Bragg. He awakened on the morning of the 19th, thinking his forces on the west side of the creek were poised to smash the Yankees' flank. But instead, there was this unexpected worrisome report that the enemy was on his own flank. In response to this news, Bragg ordered Forrest to head up the Reedsbridge Road, quote, and develop the enemy, end quote. In other words, Forrest was to perform one of the traditional roles of an army's cavalry. He was to scout up the road and find out where the enemy was located, determine the size of the enemy force, establish what the enemy was up to, and report all of this information back to Braxton Bragg so the Confederate Army commander could decide what to do. As we mentioned in the last episode, Forrest's command was widely scattered, so he still only had the 1,600 horsemen of Pegram's brigade immediately on hand to carry out the task that Bragg had assigned to him. In any case, after the early morning dust-up with McCook's Federals, a lull set in after McCook withdrew his men in compliance with Granger's orders. The men of Pegram's brigade settled in around Jay's Mill to cook breakfast or catch some sleep or care for their horses. A patrol was sent up the Reedsbridge Road, but they didn't see any Yankees. When Captain Henry Clay led another reconnaissance through the woods south of the road, he also returned to report the enemy had disappeared. Things were quiet, but Forrest still wasn't completely at ease. So a short while later, yet another patrol was sent out. This time, Colonel Charles Good led the 250 men of the 10th Confederate Cavalry off through the woods to the west of Jay's Mill. There in the woods, Good and his men soon found Yankees. They ran into the line of skirmishers screening the advance of Colonel John Croxton's brigade of Brannan's division, which was advancing directly east toward Jay's Mill. 
George Thomas had ordered Brannon to spearhead the advance from Kelly's Field toward Reed's Bridge, and Brannon, in turn, had tapped Croxton's brigade to lead the way, moving through the woods, while Colonel Ferdinand Van Der Veer's brigade advanced on Croxton's left, down the Reed's Bridge Road, and Colonel John Connell's brigade followed Van Der Veer as the division reserve. When Good and his men from the 10th Confederate Cavalry stumbled upon Croxton's skirmish line, Good ordered a charge. The Federals quickly fell back toward their brigade line, closely pursued by the enthusiastic rebel horsemen. Suddenly, the 250 Confederate horsemen charging headlong through the woods ran smack into 2,200 Yankee foot soldiers in line of battle. Sergeant Samuel Thompson of the 10th Indiana later recalled that they let the rebel cavalry get within 80 yards, and then, quote, We rose and poured such a volley among them that they wheeled their horses and fled. Good's men turned and bolted. When they reached Jay's Mill, a private in the 6th Georgia Cavalry left a vivid description of the moment, saying, quote, The panic-stricken troopers came down upon us with a rush, wild-eyed, hatless, without guns, many of them wounded and bleeding, two on one horse, riderless horses by the score, men yelling at the top of their voices, Get, boys, the woods are full of Yankees. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor a revolutionary, and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The 10th Confederates stampede through Jay's Mill, through the other rebel cavalry into disarray, 
and many joined their fleeing, panicked comrades. But Forrest and Pegram and other officers soon had the men back in ranks, moving westward to confront Croxton's Federals. At this point, Forrest had a decision to make. He basically had two options. One, he could give ground in the face of the enemy advance, or two, he could fight it out. Keep in mind, during the Civil War, it wasn't the job of cavalry to stand toe-to-toe with a better-armed, more numerous opponent. In fact, the cavalry's job was not to stand in line of battle against enemy infantry. And so, while Forrest certainly needed to screen the army's flank, develop the size and scope of the Federal advance, and report that information up the chain of command, he could do that with a fighting retreat, just like Minty's Federal horsemen had done the day before at Reed's Bridge. Forrest could choose to avoid a stand-up fight and instead give ground slowly, assessing the strength and probable intentions of the Yankees. If the threat was serious, then Braxton Bragg could eventually replace Forrest's cavalry with rebel infantry in sufficient numbers to counter George Thomas's advance toward Reed's Bridge. On the other hand, Forrest could decide to make a fight of it by standing fast and calling up infantry support of his own. This would certainly determine the scope of the Federal opposition and shield the Army's flank and protect Reed's Bridge if Forrest's troopers weren't overwhelmed by the Yankee infantry. However, there were several drawbacks to this course of action. Not least was the fact that Forrest's force numbered about 1,600 men, of which one quarter would need to serve as horse holders, and he was likely matched up against a sizable force of Federal foot soldiers, so he would need infantry support to come up and help him quickly. Forrest would also be bringing on a full-scale engagement when that simply wasn't his job as a cavalry commander. Having found the enemy was moving towards Reed's Bridge, Forrest should have simply screened the Federal advance and reported the details to Bragg. Instead, he chose to slug it out with the Yankees, who were advancing through the woods over yonder. He requested infantry support, and also simply commandeered nearby Confederate infantry without permission. With his combative nature on full display, but showing he had no business being in charge of a fight like this one, he then used the Confederate infantry poorly, flinging brigades into action piecemeal against superior numbers, and lost heavily in the ensuing attacks. Forrest's request for assistance reached Bragg when the Confederate commander was at or near Thedford's Ford. Bragg was concerned by the news that a possibly sizable force of Federals was near Jay's Mill. The closest infantry to Forrest's position were troops from William H.T. Walker's Corps, so Bragg immediately authorized Walker to loan Forrest an infantry brigade. Walker, Simon Bolivar Buckner, and John B. Hood were all there with Bragg, awaiting the morning's orders, presumably to begin the attack toward Lee and Gordon's mills as planned. 
but now, with an unknown amount of trouble brewing to the north, up around Jay's Mill and Reed's Bridge, Bragg put those plans on hold. To support Forrest, Walker selected Colonel Claudius Wilson's brigade. Wilson commanded three Georgia regiments and two battalions of Louisiana and Georgia sharpshooters, totaling about 1,200 men. The same courier who carried Forrest's request to Bragg now galloped to Wilson, who was near Alexander's Bridge, and within a short time Wilson had his men moving up the Jay's Mill Road. He met Forrest on the way. In the woods west of Jay's Mill, fortunately for the Confederate cavalry, Croxton's Federals didn't immediately press their attack very hard. This was because Croxton was waiting for Vanderveer's brigade to move up and come alongside him to the north, thus outflanking the Confederates who were opposing him. For at least half an hour, perhaps nearer 45 minutes, the dismounted rebel cavalry traded fire with Croxton's Yankee infantry. At some point, Forrest grew impatient waiting for the support he'd requested, and he rode off to hurry along what help he could find. As he rode down the Jay's Mill Road, he encountered Claudius Wilson coming up it. Forrest directed Wilson to go on and take his brigade into action on the Federal right, near the, near the Winfrey Field. Then Forrest rode on, looking for more men. He found them in the form of Brigadier General Matthew Ector's brigade, also of Walker's Corps. While Wilson's brigade was Forrest to use at Bragg's direction, Ector's was not, so Forrest simply commandeered it. Ector double-timed his 1,200 men up the Jay's Mill Road, formed them into line of battle in the open ground around the sawmill, and then advanced up the Reedsbridge Road. They didn't have to go far before they ran into Van Der Veer's Federals. An Alabaman would recall, quote, We had gone but a short distance before we discovered a heavy line of Federal infantry with several batteries just in our front. They opened a murderous fire on us, and we in turn upon them. The lines swayed back and forth. We would drive them, and then they would drive us. In advancing unsupported up the Reeds Bridge Road and finding himself entangled with this force of Yankees to his front, Matthew Ector was concerned about the vulnerability of his open right flank, and he sent Captain Buck Kilgore back to Forrest, saying so. Forrest replied, Tell General Ector that he need not bother about his right flank. On the Federal side, Division Commander John Brannan with both his leading brigades engaged, decided to split his reserve, Connell's brigade, and send troops to reinforce both efforts. Two regiments went to bolster Vanderveer. Those extra Yankees meant that Ector found himself overmatched there in the fighting on the Reedsbridge Road, and he sent Captain Kilgore back to Forrest again, this time with concerns about his left flank. Forrest, never a patient man to begin with, now, according to Kilgore, became, quote, furious. He turned around on me and shouted, loud enough to be heard above the terrible din, Tell General Ector that by God I am here and will take care of his left flank as well as his right. 
But despite his bluster, Forrest failed to protect Ector's flanks, and in fact, Ector's brigade was badly mauled when additional Federal reinforcements arrived on the scene. Ector himself was wounded four times. Every mounted officer in their brigade had had a horse shot from under him, and two regimental commanders went down with severe wounds. The dramatic increase in the noise of battle that marked the entry of Wilson's and Ector's brigades into the fight caught Braxton Bragg and his assembled commanders by surprise. Walker was seated, talking to Hood, when the roar of battle caught his attention. Breaking off his conversation with Hood in mid-sentence, Walker went over to Bragg, who ordered him to hurry north and see what was happening, and should the need arise, quote, attack with all the force he had. Walker galloped north to Jay's Mill and soon discovered, much to his dismay, that Wilson's and Ector's brigades had not only been thrown into a major fight without his knowledge, but also that each of those formations had suffered heavy casualties and been roughly handled by the attacking Federals. Furious at this wholly unexpected turn of events, Walker brought up his other division, led by Brigadier General St. John Little, and fed it into the fight. As we'll see, this pattern will be repeated all day long. The rapidly developing momentum of the fighting meant that Braxton Bragg had to cast aside his original plan for the 19th, and instead he fed divisions into the battle one at a time, each of them directed north, not southwest toward Lee and Gordon's mills, as he'd originally intended. On the federal side, William Rosecrans matched Bragg division for division as he moved formations north and fed troops into the fast-developing fight in support of George Thomas's original attack. On the 19th, both Bragg and Rosecrans found themselves reacting to circumstances, and as a result, the fighting on the second day of the battle will become a confused, back-and-forth shoving match fought mostly amidst a patchwork of small fields and heavy woods. The tangled terrain and continually changing circumstances meant that on both sides there will be little chance for the senior officers actually on the scene to coordinate their efforts. In addition, with units being thrown into the fighting piecemeal, that is, not according to any plan, that meant throughout the day both Bragg and Rosecrans will feed divisions into the action without much regard for what corps they belong to, which will lead to confusion and mistakes as formations are separated from their parent commands. On the morning of September 19th, events were shaped on the federal side by George Thomas's seemingly uncharacteristic decision to make a bold advance in force towards Reed's Bridge, and on the Confederate side by Nathan Bedford Forrest's entirely characteristic decision to stand toe-to-toe and slug it out with the Yankee infantry advancing eastward. Those decisions triggered an entirely different battle on the 19th than the one Braxton Bragg intended while for William Rosecrans, who had sent Thomas north to frustrate any enemy plans to turn his army's flank, 
and get between him and Chattanooga, the battle on the 19th would turn into a day-long effort to feed Thomas more troops. At early dawn on the morning of the 19th of September, the advance of General Thomas's troops, after an all-night march, reached Crawfish Springs, tired, thirsty, and all covered with dust from a road nearly shoe-top deep with a thick, splurgy dust that was partially damp from a slight rain the night before. Every soldier in that night's march knew that the Confederate Army was moving on the other side of the Chickamauga to gain the road that led to Chattanooga. General Thomas's whole corps was moving with closed ranks, urged by the officers to their utmost speed toward the distant sound of battle. The troops, tired, hungry, and thirsty, covered with dust, were not allowed to break ranks to get water. In some regiments, in spite of officers, men rushed down and waded across the sheet of water, dragging a canteen or a cup to get a drink. That was the last water hundreds of them saw. Both sides rushed in troops by brigades and divisions. It was charge and countercharge until well past noon when some of the most desperate fighting of the war was taking place. We listened to the roar of battle and saw great clouds of powder smoke rising over the field, but could not see the battle. We would look at one another, but not much was said. Some would say, that is the Rebs charging, and soon would hear our men charge, as the yells were quite different. There were probably two thoughts uppermost in our minds lying there, and they conflicted with one another. One was a secret satisfaction that we were not in it, and yet we knew we would be needed. Corporal James Fenton, 19th Illinois Infantry, Stanley's Brigade, 14th Corps, Army of the Cumberland. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Voices of the Civil War, Chickamauga, by the editors of Time Life Books. Usually a handful of times during each major story arc, we have some of you ask about the quotations we use in the battle episodes, and you want to know where we find them. Well, most of them come from this Voices of the Civil War series of books by Time Life. They're long out of print, but you can still pick them up in all the usual used book places on the internet. And if you're interested in these first-person accounts by participants, then this series of books is really an indispensable resource. You can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this show, we'd like to thank the newest members for their support of the podcast. So thanks to Michael P., Diane G., and Tony N. And thanks to William M. for the recent donation. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.